Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part 14 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2019, Google jumped into the gaming arena with Stadia, while Sony and Microsoft geared up to unveil their next-generation consoles. Amidst all the excitement, loot boxes remained a hot topic, with countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, and the UK seriously considering bans. Today, they accused the gaming industry of failing to tackle addiction. I think the games industry should accept a much more proactive responsibility. It gathers the data about how people play, how much they spend. It can, it can identify the outliers, people who maybe are suddenly playing a lot more or for a long period of time been playing a lot more. Ray tracing became the buzzword of the year, and new genres like Auto Battler proved that innovation in the gaming industry was far from dead. Mobile games continued to dominate, surpassing 50% of the industry's revenue, with projections indicating it could eventually surpass $100 billion. Meanwhile, consoles represented a mere 10% of sales. 2019 also marked the retirement of two industry giants, Reggie Fils-Aimé from Nintendo and Kaz Hirai from Sony. Their retirements showed that gaming had reached a point where people could spend their entire careers working for major gaming corporations and retire as famous industry magnates. Meanwhile, Bungie, the developer behind the Destiny franchise, ended its eight-year partnership with publisher Activision. The split was a result of several factors, including Bungie's desire for independence, clashing with Activision's profit-focused approach. Destiny, which was originally envisioned as a living, breathing universe with a 10-year plan, failed to meet these lofty ambitions. Instead, the franchise faced numerous issues from the problematic release of the original Destiny game to the oversimplification of Destiny 2 that alienated hardcore fans. The introduction of micro transactions further fueled player dissatisfaction. Bungie paid a significant sum to end its publishing agreement with Activision, marking a tumultuous end to their partnership. This move was seen by many as a loss for both parties. Activision Blizzard had wanted to break up with Bungie due to the Destiny franchise failing to meet its commercial projections. On the other hand, Bungie, despite its desire for independence, struggled to maintain the financial stability necessary to remain independent. The terms of the split allowed Bungie to retain full publishing rights to Destiny, a stark contrast to the Halo-Microsoft split a decade earlier. This enabled Bungie to focus on the franchise independently, while Activision shifted its attention to its other major franchises. However, the separation was not without its costs. Activision Blizzard had assigned additional studios to assist Bungie in developing Destiny content, and these resources were now redirected to other projects. Bungie's repeated attempts to break away from partnerships with major corporations like Microsoft and Activision have resulted in financial struggles and a loss of content for their flagship franchise. Since the launch of Destiny 2, a substantial amount of content has been removed from the game, representing a reduction of 50 to 75% of the entire game. Bungie's desire for independence has been a recurring theme in its history, but financial constraints have repeatedly forced it into partnerships. Its breakups with Microsoft and Activision have not resulted in clear victories for any party involved. Bungie's struggle to maintain its independence while also meeting commercial expectations continues to shape its trajectory in the gaming industry. The question remains, 
can Bungie succeed as an independent entity, or will the desire for independence continue to result in losses? Furthermore, how did Google's entry into the gaming market with Stadia impact the industry? And what were the long-term effects of the loot box ban discussions? Shenmue 3's journey began with a promise, a promise of continuation, of a story left unfinished. Yu Suzuki's journey with Shenmue began as a beacon of innovation, but as the years went by, a series of professional setbacks cast a shadow over his career. By the time he left Sega, many had written him off, relegating his legacy to the footnotes of gaming history. However, the embers of Shenmue continued to glow in the hearts of its dedicated fans. These players saw past the technical limitations and imagined a world where Shenmue was appreciated for the groundbreaking narrative experience it intended to be. The anticipation was palpable when Yu Suzuki, the game's creator, announced its development. The Kickstarter campaign campaign's record-breaking success was a testament to the hope and excitement fans held. The rapid funding milestones it achieved were not merely numbers, they were a resounding statement of belief and hope from the community. The fact that Shenmue 3 became the highest-funded video game on Kickstarter at the time wasn't just a record, it was a vindication. But what was delivered was a game that felt out of touch with modern gaming standards. The game's UI was clunky, reminiscent of designs from two decades ago. Questing felt like a chore with objectives that were often unclear, leading players on wild goose chases with little reward. The stamina system, a mechanic meant to add realism, instead added frustration. It's one thing to pay homage to the past, but Shenmue 3 seemed trapped in it. The narrative, which should have been the game's saving grace, was its most significant letdown. The story was shallow, with little progression, making the game feel more like filler content than a continuation of a beloved saga. This was not the Shenmue that fans remembered or thought. Perhaps more accurately, it was too Shenmue, and time had pulled a nostalgic filter over people's memories, because the game is very Shenmue, and that's the problem. In either case, it certainly wasn't the game fans had waited decades for, nor was it a game that could attract a new generation of players. Suzuki's vision for Shenmue 3 seemed to be more of a personal passion project than a game designed for the masses. It's evident that he wanted to create a game that he believed was perfect, regardless of industry trends or player feedback. Shenmue 3 was never trying to be something it's not. It wasn't aiming to be the next big blockbuster or the poster child for next-gen graphics. It was, and always will be, Shenmue a game that marches to the beat of its own drum, unapologetically and proudly. While this kind of dedication can be admirable, it's also a double-edged sword. The aftermath of Shenmue 3's release saw a divided fanbase. While some appreciated the game for its nostalgic value, many felt let down by its outdated mechanics and lackluster story. The game's performance was a clear indication that while nostalgia can be a powerful motivator, it cannot replace quality and innovation. 
creation. It underscores the importance of balancing personal vision with player expectations and industry standards. While Shenmue 3 might not have been the triumphant return fans hoped for, its legacy will be one of reflection, learning, and the relentless pursuit of passion in the face of adversity. Yu Suzuki, a name that once echoed as the harbinger of innovation in the gaming world, stands as a poignant testament to the relentless march of time and the ever-evolving landscape of the industry. In an era where a singular vision could birth masterpieces, Suzuki single-handedly crafted OutRun, not just revolutionizing the racing game genre, but also inadvertently creating an entirely new musical movement. His genius was unparalleled, his passion unbridled, yet as the gaming world burgeon transitioning from the realm of individual creators to colossal teams and staggering budgets, Suzuki's brilliance seemed to wane. In a modern epoch where the average game demands the dedication of a hundred souls, millions in funding, and half a decade of toil, Suzuki's approach, rooted in personal vision and individual craftsmanship, struggled to find its place. The industry he once transformed had outpaced him, and the world watched with a mix of reverence and sorrow as this luminary grappled with the weight of his own legacy. His aspirations, vast and profound, often remained just beyond his grasp in the latter part of his career. Looking back on Suzuki's journey, we are reminded of the cruel irony of time that those who blaze trails can sometimes be left behind by the very paths they've paved. In the pages of gaming history, Yu Suzuki will forever be remembered as a visionary who soared to unparalleled heights, only to be ensnared by the very dreams he dared to chase. In Souls games, defense is usually managed through a mix of dodging, blocking, and well-timed counterattacks. Sekiro introduces the Posture System, which requires players to both attack and defend in quick succession to break an enemy's posture, leaving them open for a death blow. This was a masterful inversion of the formulaic risk-reward system most action games employ. It raised the stakes dramatically and turned combat into an intense rhythm game of swords and psychology. With every clash of the blade, players had to make split-second decisions that could either end the fight in glory or result in ignoble defeat. The posture system wasn't just an evolution of combat mechanics, it was also a response to the growing sophistication of the gaming community. Soulsborne games had accumulated a meta-culture involving extensive guides, speedruns, and lore-based storytelling. The posture system thwarted many of the established techniques, forcing players to rethink their entire approach to the game. So, in a sense, Sekiro was talking back to its audience, challenging them to adapt and grow. Interestingly, this mechanical shift subtly altered the perception of Dark Souls 2, a game that has its defenders, but often finds itself low on the list when people rank their favorite Souls games. Dark Souls 2 was criticized for its hitbox inconsistencies and perhaps less cohesive world design, but the game was also ambitious. It tried to introduce variety in combat and mechanics. May have faltered, but it aimed for evolution. With Sekiro's successful reinvention, it became easier to appreciate Dark Souls 2 for its attempts to push the envelope. We began to see it less as a failure in execution and more as a crucial step in From Software's ongoing dialogue with its player base, a dialogue that would eventually lead to Sekiro's refined combat system. Sekiro takes us to a dark, feudal Japan-inspired land 
landscape filled with lore that is as deep and intricate as any Soulsborne title. But here, there's an additional layer of historical and cultural specificity. This isn't just a game set in Japan, it's a game that dialogues with Japanese mythologies, warrior ethics, and even the representation of disability, given the protagonist's prosthetic limb. This setting serves multiple roles. It grounds the game in a specific cultural ethos, enriching the narrative depth, but it also globalizes the appeal of the game, introducing themes and histories that may be new to players from other parts of the world. The Outer Worlds is entrenched in a universe that doesn't hesitate to lay bare the absurdities of late-stage capitalism, and it does this in a way that's both humorous and damning. Satire is nothing new to gaming, but the timing of this particular brand of satirical commentary was poignant. It was a year where social issues, particularly those of wealth disparity and corporate control, were occupying an increasing amount of cultural headspace. And so the Outer Worlds offered an interactive parallel, a space where players could navigate and often subvert systems of control and exploitation, from unethical human experiments to blatant propaganda. It's not just about having players laugh at the in-game jokes, but making them reflect on the real-world issues that inspired these jabs. We were starting to see the rise of the live service model, where games become ongoing projects to be perpetually updated, often favoring multiplayer interactions over a well-crafted single-player narrative. In stark contrast, The Outer Worlds harkened back to the idea that an RPG could be a closed, single-player experience with a strong narrative spine. The game doesn't just offer choices, it imbues those choices with palpable weight and consequence. Whether it's a dialogue option that can alter the course of a quest, or a moral decision that changes your character's alignments and how factions perceive you, the game respects your agency as a player, rewarding or punishing you in ways that feel organic to the narrative. In Apex Legends, you're not just some nondescript soldier, you're a legend. A character with a unique set of abilities that can change the tide of the match. It's this synthesis of hero shooter elements, a la Overwatch, with the battle royale format that set Apex apart. Each legend's abilities encourage a particular style of play, but also offer complementary strategies when paired with other legends. Respawn wasn't just slapping abilities onto characters, they were meticulously designing a rock-paper-scissors metagame that lived beneath the surface. The ping system, often glossed over in modern dialogues, was an important innovation. This simple yet profound communication tool allowed players to mark locations, point out resources, and even warn of danger, all without uttering a single word. This design choice addressed the often daunting and toxic nature of voice chat in online games. The ping system represented an under-acknowledged but critical advancement in making online online gaming more accessible and less intimidating. And it's equally surprising how few games have managed to implement a similar system as it is how many have directly emulated it. EA patented the Apex Ping and then offered it available to use for anyone for free to improve accessibility in the gaming space. Some variation of it has shown up in basically everything now, from CSGO and Fortnite to Valorant and The Division 2. All of this wrapped up in a game that managed to get 25 million players in its first week, after being stealth dropped with absolutely no prior announcement or marketing to speak of. 
Final Fantasy VII's release on Nintendo platforms came as a full-circle moment for many longtime fans. Back in 97, Square Enix, then Squaresoft, chose Sony's PlayStation over Nintendo, dramatically altering the trajectory of both companies and the industry itself. The gravity of Final Fantasy VII finally arriving on Nintendo speaks volumes about the enduring significance of the game, the reconciliation of old industry foes, and the evolution of platform agnostic digital gaming environments. More than that, it symbolizes the maturity of video game culture, the readiness to set aside past console wars in favor of an experience that transcends hardware boundaries. Resident Evil 2's new iteration was more than a remake, it was a deconstruction and a nuanced interpretation of the original. In a market where remakes often end up being just visually enhanced editions of the old code, this game set a new standard. It went so far as to re-engineer the original original's fixed camera perspectives into an over-the-shoulder view. This choice wasn't just aesthetic, but foundational to reimagining how tension and fear could be orchestrated. It's one of my go-to examples for the question of what is a remake and does a remake need to be a remake anymore? It invites developers to scrutinize the essence of a game and creatively enhance it rather than merely port it to modern consoles. Remedy Entertainment's Control seamlessly blended storytelling with its game mechanics. The design of the Federal Bureau of Control building, a brutalist shape-shifting architecture, wasn't just a backdrop but a narrative tool. It served the story as much as any dialogue or cutscene. And let's not overlook the telekinetic combat mechanics that put as much emphasis on environmental interaction as on character skills. This symbiosis between environment and mechanics did something special. It made the player feel like an integral part of the game's world not just as a spectator or a puppeteer. Control serves as a case study in holistic game design, where every element contributes to a unified, immersive experience. Disco Elysium stood out for its intricate branching narrative and compelling writing, but the game has been mired in controversy. Accusations and legal battles surrounding its intellectual property, with allegations of fraudulent activities and toxic work environments. It brings a somber note to the game's success story. It reminds is that even as we applaud the front-end creativity, the back-end can be fraught with challenges that threaten not just sequels, but the reputation of the gaming industry itself. Bloodstained Ritual of the Night is a standout case of crowdfunding done right in an era when the Kickstarter brand itself has faced skepticism. While numerous projects failed to deliver on their promises, Bloodstained not only met its objectives, but exceeded them. In an age of increased skepticism around platforms like Kickstarter and Fig, Bloodstained managed to restore some faith in the notion of direct audience involvement in game development. It demonstrated that when done right, crowdfunding can allow for projects that might not otherwise have the backing of major publishers. And then, Death Stranding. What can be said about a game that has such sharply divided opinion? Metal Gear Solid V serves as the backdrop to understanding Death Stranding. Released in two parts, Ground Zeroes and The Phantom Pain, it was conceived as a sprawling epic. But then something inconceivable happened. Kojima's abrupt departure from Konami not only left fans shocked, but raised questions about the completion of MGS5. The game's fragmented narrative and somewhat truncated ending led many to speculate that Konami's oversight forced a hurried finish. Now, post-Kojima, Konami released Metal Gear Survive, a title that can be described as a complete departure from what Metal Gear had traditionally represented. This was Konami 
Konami trying to continue the Metal Gear legacy but without its most crucial visionary. As you might expect, the game wasn't warmly received. Not only did it lack the storytelling gravitas we'd come to associate with Metal Gear, but the gameplay itself, focused more on survival and resource management, felt like a departure. It almost read as a metaphor for Konami itself, trying to survive in a post-Kojima world. This sets the stage for Death Stranding. Kojima, now independent, was no longer bound by any corporate overseers. The game asked players to rethink the concept of multiplayer interaction, swapping direct competition for indirect cooperation. The game dabbles in themes as vast as the human condition, isolation, and the idea of uniting a fragmented world. Its storytelling was cryptic, filled with symbolism and abstract concepts. However, the game polarized audiences. For some, the game's pacing felt glacial bogged down by what appeared to be endless fetch quests. The narrative's abstraction also bordered on obfuscation for players who felt that the story was hard to follow or just plain nonsensical. While some hailed it as a masterpiece, others found it laboriously self-indulgent. Konami's oversight had always provided a counterbalance to Kojima's more extravagant instincts. That Konami's previous involvement in Kojima's projects served as a kind of necessary boundary that kept his more extravagant, potentially alienating ideas in check. This dialectic between the creator's freedom and the constraints of commercial viability or playability forms the crux of the conversation around Death Stranding. Kojima Unchained gave us a game that was uncompromising in its vision, for better or worse. It certainly fuels the ongoing debate about the role of auteurs in an industry increasingly driven by collaboration collaborative efforts. COVID-19, the disease that defined our lives in 2020. 2020 is now the deadliest year in U.S. history. Now more than 12,000 confirmed cases. In the midst of the challenges posed by COVID-19 lockdowns and remote work, the gaming world found itself both struggling and thriving simultaneously. People sought solace in gaming while confined to their homes, and video game streamers raked in almost $10 billion, outperforming virtual and augmented reality segments of the industry. The future of the industry remained uncertain, with some analysts predicting a market shrinkage and others forecasting a $200 billion milestone. However, gaming defied the entertainment and media industry trend of a 4% drop, experiencing a 10% increase instead. PUBG alone generated $3 billion in 2020, outshining blockbuster movies like Avatar and Avengers. In a jaw-dropping turn of events, the video game industry overtook the entire movie box office with a 20% lead. 2020 was also a year of industry shaking news, such as Microsoft's acquisition of ZeniMax for $7.5 billion, and the rise of cloud gaming, with Amazon announcing Luna and Xbox introducing xCloud. Excitement continued to build with the Xbox Game Pass for PC, which expanded its offerings by adding EA Play games. It was a truly different world from where it had been not so long ago. 
Looking back, the gaming landscape has changed dramatically since the 80s when arcade machines and home consoles like the Atari 2600 and Nintendo Entertainment System ruled the roost. Graphics transitioned from 2D to 3D, and the internet enabled multiplayer gaming and digital distribution. Mobile devices and social media platforms revolutionized the way we play and share games. The 90s witnessed the rise of iconic consoles like the Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis and Sony's PlayStation, marking the beginning of the console wars. Technological advancements improved graphics, sound, and gameplay mechanics. Over the next 30 years, gaming became more accessible and diverse, appealing to broader audiences. The rise of online gaming and digital distribution platforms like Steam paved the way for indie developers to create unique and innovative games, while the rapid growth of the mobile gaming market transformed the industry. The turn of the millennium saw the launch of consoles like the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Nintendo GameCube, pushing the boundaries of graphics, storytelling, and gameplay. Gaming became more social with the rise of online multiplayer and massive multiplayer online games. Streaming platforms like Twitch and YouTube brought gaming to the forefront of popular culture, and esports became a significant phenomenon attracting audiences and investments alike. The 2010s marked the rise of digital distribution and the decline of physical media. Mobile gaming continued its upward trajectory, with smartphones and tablets becoming increasingly powerful and capable of delivering high-quality gaming experiences. Virtual reality and augmented reality emerged as new frontiers in gaming, offering immersive experiences like never before, before disappearing and becoming footnotes in their own industry. Cloud gaming services like Google Stadia and Xbox's xCloud aimed to eliminate the need for expensive hardware, making games more accessible to a broader audience. The video game industry has come a long way from its humble beginnings, with advancements in technology, accessibility, and gameplay experiences. The four decades from 1980 to 2020 showcase a rapidly changing landscape, with each new era offering exciting innovations and challenges. As we look back on the journey from the 80s to the present, it's clear that the gaming industry has undergone a massive transformation. So as we stand on the brink of yet another decade, what does the future hold for the video game industry? Animal Crossing New Horizons landed in a world engulfed by pandemic. It's impossible to examine the significance of the game without discussing how its gentle escapism provided emotional and psychological relief to millions of people isolated in their homes. It was, in many ways, the right game at the right time. Beyond merely offering a leisure activity, it became a tool for communal interaction. People hosted weddings, graduation ceremonies, and even political campaigns on their digital islands. The space it offered was limited only by the imagination, and it replaced, to some extent, the real-world interactions people were starved for. While traditional aspects like fishing and fossil hunting remained, what really stood out was how major global festivals like Halloween, Christmas, and Lunar New Year were incorporated. Nintendo was no stranger to embedding cultural festivals in gameplay, but the sheer number and global span of these in New Horizons showcased a new level of cosmopolitan awareness. Moreover, brands like Gucci and Fendi releasing official Animal Crossing designs indicated the game's crossover into mainstream lifestyle, influencing and being influenced by real-world fashion and consumer 
consumerism. Players and journalists used the game as a platform for interviews, which weren't merely stunts, but serious engagements with the medium. You had talk shows and celebrity interviews happening within the game's virtual space, demonstrating how it had become more than just a game, it was a new kind of public square. This wasn't merely an adaptation, but a transformation, turning what could be a solitary or small group activity into a new form of mass media. There was a huge array of A-list celebrities and artists who visited these Animal Crossing talk shows, their participation showing that the game had erased the traditional boundaries not just between different subcultures within gaming, but between gaming and mainstream culture itself. Roguelike games have historically struggled with storytelling due to their very nature. Players are expected to die and restart. Hades flips the script on this issue by incorporating the deaths into the narrative itself. Every time you find yourself back in the House of Hades, it's not a step back, but a lateral step into deeper layers of storytelling. Conversations with other characters change, you gain a different perspective on your mission, and you even begin to understand the very gods who thwart your path. The game employs a branching dialogue system that doesn't just create an illusion of narrative depth, but delivers it, acting as a compelling counterpoint to the cyclical gameplay loop. It's a genuine fusion of game mechanics and storytelling, often sought but rarely achieved. While beautiful visuals in video games aren't groundbreaking, the cohesion between between Hades' art and its storytelling is something to be lauded. Every chamber in the game, from the fiery pits of Asphodel to the lush fields of Elysium, is meticulously detailed and dripping with atmosphere. But more than that, the art isn't just window dressing, it's an integral part of the narrative delivery. From the portrait art during dialogues to the level design, every visual element serves as a storytelling device, engaging the player emotionally and intellectually. You can't separate Hades' narrative achievements from its art, the two are symbiotically connected. While roguelikes often live or die based on their combat systems, Hades manages to make every weapon feel like a different game altogether. But it's not just the variety, it's the sense of progression within each weapon type. The strategies that emerge from various combinations of boons or power-ups that players can adopt. A single run in Hades can drastically change based on your weapon and boon choices, and that feeds back into the narrative depth we talked about earlier. Lockdowns and social distancing measures meant that many of us were confined to our homes, physically isolated but digitally connected. Video games had a role to play in this, but Among Us filled a very specific need. It captured the essence of sitting around a table with a group of friends, laughing, scheming, arguing, and bonding. The very things we were starved for in the real world suddenly came alive on our screens. Among Us wasn't merely a substitute for real-world social interactions, it became a new format for them, enabling far-flung family and friends to engage in a shared experience. A lot of the games that get media attention are resource-intensive blockbuster titles that require high-end hardware. Among Us ran counter to that trend. Its simple graphics and minimal processing needs meant it was accessible to almost any 
anyone with a digital device. Smartphones, tablets, low-end laptops, you name it. This inclusivity broke down traditional barriers of entry to gaming, pulling in an audience that was genuinely diverse in age, geography, and gaming literacy. And let's not forget how Among Us became a fresh canvas for self-expression. The in-game cosmetics, the mods, and yes, even the memes created a culture around the game that went far beyond its coded parameters. The artwork, the fan theories, the communities that sprang up around it, it became a living, breathing entity. The game wasn't just a game, it was a culture, a dialect almost, understood by millions and continually evolving in fascinating ways. Twitch streamers amplified this cultural pervasiveness. Here, we see an instance where content creators and a game fed off each other's popularity in a symbiotic relationship. Among Us provided endless content opportunities, whether in the form of debates, betrayals, or downright comedic moments. Streamers could interact in real time with their audience, polling them for decisions or just sharing a laugh, thereby adding a participative layer to the viewing experience. And each Twitch broadcast reached new audiences, drawing them into the Among Us ecosystem, a self-sustaining cycle of visibility and engagement. It should not surprise anyone after hearing that to find out that Among Us is the most played game of all time, at one point reaching over 500 million monthly players. Doom Eternal served as both a refuge and a battleground for gamers. While I gave the game a 7 out of 10 in my in-depth, hour-long YouTube review, I must admit it has divided opinions within the community, including my own. Id Software's attempts at innovating the franchise, particularly through the new resource loop system, led to a form of gameplay that I found to be more about micromanagement than the adrenaline-pumping action Doom is known for. The game's shift towards platforming elements and puzzles, epitomized by features like purple goo, has been polarizing. This inclusion seemed to distance the game from its original, combat-forward ethos, a sentiment echoed by some other players and critics. Even the game's approach to difficulty settings, while ambitious, did not universally resonate, impacting the pacing and even altering the narrative urgency depending on your skill level. As for its effects on my YouTube channel, the game proved to be a contentious subject that sparked extensive debate. My review garnered an influx of views, but also a surge in negative comments, underscoring the divisive nature of Doom Eternal. This experience was a reflection of the larger discussions happening in the community, revealing the complexities in game design, and the challenges of meeting a diverse array of player expectations. The feedback had a profound impact on me as a content creator. The surge in viewership came with increased scrutiny and even misinterpretation of my arguments by larger commentary channels. Nonetheless, the experience reaffirmed the importance of aesthetic criticism and the value of subjective bias in reviews. It also reminded me of the responsibility I have to my community to provide nuanced and informed perspectives, even when they may not be universally accepted. It's quite the narrative arc, this transformation of the Yakuza series. If you had looked at the franchise before Yakuza 0 came along, you'd have found a decently respected but largely niche series. Most discussions about it were limited to subreddits and specialty forums, mostly because Sega, for whatever reason, seemed hesitant to commit to a robust Western marketing strategy. This lack of commitment meant the franchise had been pigeonholed as too Japanese for Western gamers, a misconception that couldn't 
couldn't be further from the truth. Then Yakuza 0 happened, and it was as if someone kicked over a domino that set off a chain reaction. Yakuza, like a dragon, a prequel entry, decided to go all in with the storytelling, giving us not just another gangster drama, but a rich narrative tapestry. It took the time to flesh out characters we thought we knew, turning them into multi-dimensional beings. This character depth, combined with an intriguing plot and a vibrant, living world, made for an extraordinary gaming experience that transcended cultural boundaries. Social media, especially Twitter, exploded with memes, clips, and discussions about the series. Gaming communities that had never touched a Yakuza game suddenly became interested, and this social media virality provided the series with the momentum that even the most expensive marketing campaigns struggled to generate. Yakuza Like a Dragon not only shook up its own established gameplay formula by introducing turn-based mechanics, but it also marked another milestone. It was released in both English and Japanese simultaneously. Think about that for a moment. A game that once saw staggered, almost grudging releases in the West was now a headliner, a big Xbox showcase game. This is a fascinating study in contrasts, a tale of a series that went from being under-marketed and misunderstood to standing shoulder to shoulder with the biggest names in the industry. Fall Guys Ultimate Knockout seized upon the collective yearning for social connection when the world was isolating. Here was a game that was a strange melange of platformer and battle royale, eschewing the gritty realism that was pervasive in the genre for pastel hues and whimsical courses, reminiscent of game shows like Wipeout. However, Fall Guys did something we're not talking enough about. It leveraged social media virality like few had done before, from memes to community challenges, the game was designed for shareability. Yet its cultural cachet took a hit when Among Us stole the limelight, revealing how social media that can build you up can just as easily tear you down. The purchase by Epic Games later transformed it from a flash-in-the-pan phenomenon to a stabilized free-to-play game. On to Final Fantasy VII Remake. This was more than just a graphical overhaul. The game served as a meta-commentary on the nature of nostalgia. Characters you knew and loved were suddenly complex, filled with nuance. No longer did Cloud strut around with polygonal arms, he was now a fully fleshed out human being struggling with an identity crisis. It is absolutely incredible that the developers have managed to make us question whether or not the single most well-known spoiler in the history of gaming is going to happen again in this game. The original Final Fantasy VII led the charge in narrative storytelling in video games in 1997, and its remake is a marker for how far we've come, showing that gaming narratives can be just as intricate and emotionally resonant as any Oscar-winning film. Most notably, it ignited conversations about the very nature of remakes. Are they simply derivative works, or can they be works of art in their own right that converse with the source material. Ghosts of Tsushima, with its lush, vivid landscapes and meticulously researched historical elements, wasn't just a game. It was a love letter to feudal Japan and samurai cinema. The Guiding Wind was a paradigm shift. It's an element that redefined the concept of immersion by making navigation feel less like a task and more like a form of exploration that you are intrinsically motivated to do. 
do. The game demonstrated how form could meet function in ways that also deepen the narrative and the emotional resonance of the experience. In a game when HUD and UI elements have often been distracting add-ons, GPS lines, mini-maps, and blinking compass locations, Ghost of Tsushima allowed players to immerse themselves in the world, truly living the life of Jin Sakai if only for a few hours at a time. Super Mario All-Stars has sparked a conversation that the industry has been avoiding for a while. Are games a product or a service? By limiting access to classics like Mario 64, Nintendo is toying with the perception of value. Much like Disney vaulting its classics to drum up a sense of scarcity and nostalgia-fueled demand, Nintendo's strategy with this collection suggests a trend towards digital scarcity, a concept previously antithetical to the gaming community. Half-Life Alex did for VR what the original Half-Life did for the first-person shooter. It set a new standard. The tragedy here is timing. By 2020, VR had not reached the mass adoption many had hoped for, yet Alex showcased what VR could do, from the tactile nature of reloading a gun to the sheer terror of facing a headcrab in full 3D space. Its timing demonstrated the pitfalls of technological adoption cycles in gaming, illustrating how even brilliance can be obscured by external trends. Cyberpunk 2077 embodies the risk of ambition. This game promised a sprawling, neon-lit future filled with narrative depth, yet it became a lesson in the dangers of overhyping a game to the point where it could never meet expectations. The game absolutely did not work on the PS4 and barely ran on any consoles at all. While Sede Project Red's reputation took a substantial hit, those who played the game on capable systems found a narrative richness that rivals literary works in the sci-fi genre. It's a dual narrative of incredible success and catastrophic failure rolled into one. Lastly, Bugsnacks, in all its absurdity, was a title that captured the internet's imagination, if only for a brief moment. With a quirky concept and a catchy theme song, it was instantly memefied across the internet. While it didn't sustain long-term public interest, it's a testament to how a unique concept can momentarily capture the world's attention, even in a landscape dominated by big-budget titles. In this year of 2020, Bugsnacks so perfectly encapsulates our seeming need for variety, for change, for new experiences, and our willingness to collectively glom onto any great experience. Fall Guys, Among Us, Animal Crossing, Hades, anything at all, as long as we can experience it together. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.